0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Unstructured. Today I'm super excited, might actually geek out a little bit and I hope I don't embarrass anyone. I have the great Daniele Bolelli, who is a history professor, MMA fighter, philosopher, um, studies uh, American Indian studies, and masterful historian and podcaster, essentially a renaissance man. What, what is it you don't do?
1: Um I suck at plumbing. I'm not very good with plum work.
0: <laughs> well, um have you heard of the job where we're all gonna lose our fields? Right. Plumbers won't. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I wanna start off the um interview with I guess the more serious subject. When exactly did you discover Conan the Barbarian?
1: Conan the Barbarian, speaking of which, people who listen can't see right now, but of course I am wearing a Conan (laughs) um, t-shirt. Conan, I was eight years old and I watched uh, the first, uh, the 1982 Arnold Schwarzenegger, the first Conan movie, because the other Conan movies suck. They were terrible, but that was (laughs) the, the first one was awesome. Soundtrack is amazing. I still listen to it all the time today. Um, the, um. And yeah, I got to watch it, loved it. And then after that, the main scenes, I mean, I, I kind of check out the comics, but not that much. Mainly was okay. the Conan movie and then uh, reading the Robert E. Howard stories.
0: Okay. So you kind of went at it in reverse. I know that the comics were around when I grew up in the seventies, yeah. same time as you, I think, or similar. And the movie came out later, but I never really got deeply into it, but it's interesting. So you're watching it when you're eight in Italy?
1: Yeah. And it turns out that it was actually, Italy is this thing where you don't have the option where the parent says, Oh no, I take responsibility. No, if there's a, it's for, like, I think he was under 14 years old. You couldn't go. 14 was the minimum age that he was ranked at as like, you need to be 14 or over. And even if your parents say he can, they don't give a crap. <laughs> so we went there and you know, my dad had took plead with the guy at the theater and basically the guy said, oh man, if they bust me, a pro- okay, I'll pretend <laughs> I didn't see you guys. So he just let us sneak in for free, which was, made it even better.
0: Oh, that's sweet. So yeah. not only you let you in, but you wound up not charging you. So exactly. Okay. And you saw it in the theater. I didn't know if it was something you saw on television. I'm not no. great on
1: theater.
0: Okay. Awesome. So you grew up in Milan. What, mm-hmm. what exactly is that like? I haven't heard you discuss that a lot.
1: Uh, it's a big city. You know, it's like most big cities around the world. It kind of has that busy um, vibe. Uh, bay. I forget exactly how many it is. I think it's like two million people or something like that. It's a lot of people. It's a big. It's a big place. And um, I didn't really like it growing up. I mean, probably because I lived in a crappy part of town. It was just really poor and really crappy where I lived. Mm. Now, when I go back, it's a lot nicer, probably because I go to better parts of town. So it's a lot, you know, the whole vibe is considerably more pleasant. But when I was growing up, it was, you know, the neighborhood I was in wasn't the best.
0: Hmm, Okay. And... Now, your your father is a a fashion designer.
1: No, um, oh, I'm sorry. My dad is like, who the hell figure out what he does? But uh, I mean, he writes books, uh, he writes articles, he's uh, organizes festival cultural events. But you know, he doesn't really have one profession. He's uh, he's his profession, and nobody can figure out exactly which one it is. Um, when I was growing up, he clearly made a choice that money wasn't going to be a priority. You know, he wanted to have a lot of time for himself, a lot of time to spend with me. So, you know, he was, which was another reason why we were living in a part, crappy part of town, because
0: we had, <laughs>
1: money, you know, because, and it was, it was kind of funny growing up because I remember seeing, uh, people would come to his house all the time to chat and talk and discuss things and stuff. And, you know, today it would be the same kind of conversation that you put the microphone on and you have podcasts. But back then it mm-hmm. was just you're visiting and, you know, all these very cool, interesting people from all walks of life. And so many people I remember being like, oh, man, you have this great lifestyle. I envy it so much. Mm-hmm. And then you would stop to look at their bank account. And these guys are making 10 times what he's making in a year. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, how exactly are you envying this? You know, it's a choice. It's not... There's no, it's not luck. There's a price to pay that you're not willing to pay. You know, you like some aspects of it, mm-hmm. but you're really not willing to live with the fact that there's no money. And mm-hmm. so it, I always found it funny when it was like, oh, I envy it. It's like, you could do the same thing. You just choose, <laughs> you
0: know. Well, maybe they envy the bravery.
1: Yeah, but again, that's like, if you envy that much, if you feel that strongly about it, I think you can get the bravery. Possibly. Otherwise, you, otherwise you don't really want it. You're just talking for the sake of talking, because if you really want it, then you can do it. Or otherwise, yeah, otherwise, because it's, it's a cool idea, but it's not something that you can really live with.
0: Yeah, I can see that as a proper corporate drone. I can definitely relate because I am concerned about the mortgage and getting mm-hmm. everything done. and, I'm living life on the side, not doing podcasts, but at least meeting cool people like you and thinking about stuff and.
1: No, and in fact to me it's like, it's not that I, not that I consider wrong that other choice. (laughs) I think it makes perfect sense. And I mean, having money is nice and you know, I mean, I literally grew up on a street where it was mainly populated by Brazilian transsexual hookers on a regular, like when you go out at night. You would get mugged on a regular on the street. So, you know, it was a shitty place.
0: What Uh, is it about Brazilians and transsexuals?
1: I have no idea. And I don't know why they were in Italy. But in any case, (laughs) my my street happened to be famous for that. (laughs) That's funny. uh, So, you know, it was just, uh, it's price you pay. Uh, There are some advantages and there are some serious disadvantages. And you got to figure out which one, you know, where your balance lays between, I think it's something that everybody's got to figure out the balance between free time versus, um, money. Those are, you know, you rarely get paid tons of money to do something that you just do for fun and love. So most of the time, whatever much money you make, there's a trade off in your time and energy and you want to figure out how much time and energy you want to trade for how much money and you know, where exactly does the balance, where, where do you draw the line? Because, of course, ideally, we all want as much money as possible, but that costs us all our time and energy. True. And that's not fun anymore. So ideally, we also want all our time and energy, but that leaves us with no money. So since ideally is not going to happen unless you win the lottery or marry rich, <laughs> the next choice is, okay, where exactly do I draw the line? Where's a healthy balance between the two?
0: And even winning the lottery has proven out to be a horrible thing in many people's lives because they weren't mentally prepared for it. So they just flagrantly lived on the edge, kind of blew it all out Um, and discovered all kinds of new relatives. They never knew they had.
1: (laughs) I I think it's a problem that I would handle masterfully. So if the universe just (laughs) handed me a winning lottery ticket, I think i would handle it well. Uh,
0: Well, I feel like I'm a misplaced uh, trust fund baby, but it didn't work out. I missed that line, but okay. So even growing up poor and I grew up, I grew up poor in a rich school in a rich neighborhood. So it's a very weird situation, but um, it sounds like you really had a good quality of life. Like you learned how to engage with other people and discover yourself and how to um, converse. You've got an obviously awesome personality. I think it carried over.
1: Yeah, my dad was great. I mean, he got to, because he was not really working a whole lot, he would just spend a ton of time with me. He would play with me all the time. He would do all these things. So that's a big deal. That's a really nice thing that I think a lot of kids would gladly trade some comfort and money for having a father who's more involved in their lives.
0: That's awesome. So are you close to him um, to this day? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's great.
0: Good. Good. Now, um... I'm curious about America, or the United States, and your views on them, because I I feel that you have very strong views, and I want to reach back a little bit. What did you think about the United States before you came to the United States?
1: I think what always intrigued me was, and not just the United States, but LA in specific, is that LA is... The way I see it is the world's capital, because it's where people from literally all over the world you can run into in L.A. Mm -hmm. It's not like any other place where you run into some people. But, you know, L.A., you really run into every conceivable culture on earth you can run into in L.A. The kind of stuff that people consume all over the world is produced in L.A., culturally speaking, you know, specifically movies. Hollywood, Mm -hmm. everybody watch Hollywood movies. And uh, a lot of music. So, I mean, to me, culturally speaking, LA was always sort of the center of the world. Even people who hate LA and say, oh, Hollywood, uh, the reality is they still consume a monstrous amount of what's produced within a few miles from here. You know,
0: mm.
1: it's whether people like it or not, it still has a humongous influence on uh, how people think, how people view the world, the stories that people tell. Uh, to a large degree, they're all set up out here.
0: Yeah, it's like the weather. It travels west to east. That's the idea. Okay. And so that was your impression before you came. Did uh-huh. it meet your expectations or how was it different to you?
1: No, I mean, that's how it is. Is um, That's why I still live in LA. I find that part interesting. I mean, it's um, like everything. There are advantages and disadvantages. You know, it's like one thing that I didn't realize before I came here was how monstrously lonely American society is, you know, people work like dogs and then they rarely ever see their friends. And, you know, it's not the most. And again, there are exceptions. Of course, if you live in a tiny town, it's a lot easier to be surrounded. You have less opportunities and you have more sociability. Um, But for the big cities, that's like, I mean, I thought Italy was kind of like not sociable enough. And Italy... (laughs) five hundred times more sociable than u s is so I was like so that part was uh I was not super happy with
0: okay, are you getting used to it now, or have you just built up your own community around yourself and
1: yeah, just- I mean it's I, I the reality is I didn't have my ideal what I would love and you know what I think would be a healthy life. I didn't have it anywhere I didn't have it in Italy, I didn't have it here. I it a little more in Italy, but, you know, a little more is not, it's like a little more without really having it. And, but on top of it, there are way less opportunities in Italy that instead I have here. So I like, eh, you know, it's kind of a give and take. Some things are definitely better over there. Some things better over here.
0: But overall, you're still living there. So it's a net positive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Overall, I dig it. I mean, everything that I'm doing right now in my life would be kind of hard to imagine me having started you know like i teach part time i started teaching when i was um I think 27 or 28 mm. and there was no way like i think i saw some statistics in italy that the like 90% of people teaching college were over 60 years old like really you get to have teaching gigs when you are 27 or 28 That's just not going to happen you know so the mm. um, you know, just the, and granted I teach most, I teach two different places part time. So it adds up to a full-time low, but it's not a full-time job, but still all the stuff that I'm doing, teaching probably would have never happened in Italy. Uh, podcasting, the whole world was for me started out with meeting Rogan and being introduced to the whole world. That was a very LA kind of thing. So, I mean, everything in my life to a large degree is very, to a place you know it's very much yeah. be tied to they, and none of this stuff would have been possible not living here
0: that's cool and i kind of would like to um travel through that journey of meeting rogan and sure. sadly i know obviously um you went through a, a very painful time sure now you came here uh, initially as a fighter
1: no i came here actually i came here when i was 18. I came in at 18 years old right after high school and just, uh, I figure I was, my mom wanted to move out here anyway, cause she never really liked Italy very much. And, um, she was a journalist and so she had this opportunity to be able to get a visa by writing about us for an Italian magazine. Oh. So I had a chance to come with her you know, and explore and just see what is it like? Cause I kind of could see my life in Italy and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I could foresee the next few decades and I was like, eh, it's all right, but it's not exactly what I want. U S was just open territory. I had no idea what it would mean, what it would, could be great, could be awful. I had no clue. And I was curious to check it out. And, and so I came out, I started going to college and, you know, with the struggles, because I quickly realized that the image I had, you know, I only saw the cool stuff. I didn't see the ugly stuff. And sure. I was excited to the fact that there are both aspects. But overall, I started digging, living in the U.S. and I started feeling progressively more comfortable. I was going to college really only because I needed a visa, not because I wanted to go to college because I, <laughs> I was, uh, you know, the stuff I learned in college, I would learn on my own faster and better if it was up to me. But mm-hmm. A college was also awesome for meeting people, you know, getting to hang out with people your age. There's nothing like it. So in that sense, I, something that I would strongly recommend to people, not for the learning, but for the social aspect of it. Right. And, um, and so with that, that's when I started getting a lot heavier into martial arts. That's when uh, I started trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And, you know, it kind of developed during that period.
0: Okay. Okay. And you just, what, what was your degree again?
1: Uh, The first one I got a BA in anthropology, but I quickly found out that I hated anthropologists. (laughs) It looked really good from afar, but once I got into it, I'm like, this thing sucks. Um, Then I started, um, I start, you know, I, I had to figure out something because otherwise I was going to get kicked out of the country. So I figure There was a UCLA, they had this Master in American Indian Studies, and I mean, I knew a lot about American Indian culture and history through personal connections already, so I was like, yeah, I can do that, that's easy, it's a piece of cake, so buys me a couple of years of a visa, so that works. (laughs) So I got an MA in American Indian Studies. Now, obviously, this was not a well-conceived plan of "Oh, I'm going to teach, and so, because of course, I picked Eddie Green, one of the most obscure subjects in the universe,
0: and
1: that and I started realizing that maybe I would want to teach part time at a community college, mm-hmm. and that I was like, "Ooh, damn! Now I need something else." So then I got another master in history, because that, of course, expanded my range considerably.
0: I can imagine, but yeah. it's kind of interesting watching your journey because the steps that you're taking—they're what made you who you are now. I mm-hmm. mean. Your American Indian culture, things like that. You've really used that a lot uh, for podcasting. Mm-hmm. Um, you're striking on interest at, or, or ground that's not necessarily as well tilled in other areas. So now you can sort of own that subject, and that's sort of cool.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: like um, your accent. You've commented on your accent many times, but I would argue your accent is an advantage.
1: The band's. I think some people dig it, but I'm sure I lose people who are like, fuck this guy. don't want to listen to this. I don't have to speak English already.
0: That might be, but I think about it, and there was a kind of a really interesting study done a while back that all the great movie stars have extremely distinct voices. If you think Hmm. of Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, Arnold, Mm -hmm. um, Christopher Walken, Jack Nicholson, if you can parody them, they're a giant star and right. part of it is their voice is distinct and that helps them stand out from the crowd. I would argue your voice is extremely distinct and you stand out from the crowd.
1: That's for sure. Uh, that's yeah, certainly is not your, I think it's like anything It's like anything that marks you as different mm-hmm. is very good in some way, but you do pay, pay a price in other ways. Like I'm, I don't know what the percentages are, but I'm fairly sure that somewhere between 10 to 20 percent of people who to me in episode one of History on Fire decide, nope, not for me, too much work. I don't want to try to listen to this
0: guy. (laughs) Fortunately, though, it is on um, Roman Slaves, so it it does somehow sound appropriate. Right. Even though I got confused because I thought that um, Romans all had British accents because I watched Rome.
1: Of course, because all the <laughs> movies are all done from BBC and stuff.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Which kind of works in a weird way because I'm American, so an accent sounds foreign, yeah. but, you know. We don't I, do.
1: It's all the same.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, isn't it just small cafes and scooters?
1: Yeah, exactly. All the
0: same. <laughs> I admittedly have no idea, so I fall into every uh, stereotype.
1: Actually, I did have a guy once tell me, oh, where are you from, Uh you're from Italy? That's so cool. I was just there in Paris. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) What? The guy was in France, and he thought he was in Italy.
0: Wow. Now, Out of curiosity, and I hate to jump back on it, but what are some differences, like, say, between Milan and Rome? Because, I mean, each area is very culturally different in Italy, is
1: Language is different, some of the culture is different, for sure. I mean, the stereotype, and like all stereotypes, there's a little bit of truth to it, is that the further north you go, the more it's kind of industrial, business, uh, that kind of thing. The further south you go is a little more laid back, not quite as intense in terms of work, uh, a little more in terms of relax and play, that kind of thing.
0: That's not dissimilar to here. Right. Right. And you mentioned the language is different. Does that um, meaning there's accents within, kind of like we have a southern accent and, you know, New Yorkers okay. sound completely? Okay.
1: It's not just the accent. Sometimes there are dialects, which are almost other languages. I mean, you oh. understand them. You know, you under, if somebody's speaking a Napolitan accent, I'll get it, but there definitely are words that I go like, what the hell was that? Because, you know? <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, there are regional influences that are definitely leave you puzzled sometimes
0: i actually um told um hunter motz that i was going to be interviewing you and was coming up with different questions and he said ask Danielli to um compare milan and other cities in terms of religions mm,
1: you know that's the thing is like as i was growing up there was no religion nobody gave a crap you know there was the um, You know, the one Catholic kid in your classroom was the one that people look at like, whoa, the guy's religious? How weird, you know? (laughs) He was just not a thing. It just, I mean, I'm sure it's a thing on the countryside, Mm -hmm. but in cities, nah, people didn't care.
0: It's funny. I've been listening to you on um, Duncan Trussell lately and different things. So I've gotten the impression that while I don't think you're a a Christian, you're a a Taoist, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, even that, I'm not a huge fan of labels in general.
0: Okay, but you're so. not not—you're not an atheist, or at least you're not no. an anti-theist. No, no,
1: no.
0: Because that can be kind of fundamentalist in of itself.
1: Yep, yep, that's my feeling.
0: So that's interesting to listen to, and I love the open-minded aspect of we really don't know what the hell's going on, so we kind of want to keep scratching at it.
1: Which I think why I don't like labels, because it's always like you're done searching, you know, these are the answer, they are codified in this one approach. And I always feel like even the best approaches is like, yeah, works some of the time, except when it doesn't, and then you need something else.
0: That's true. Um, and you wrote a book on that, Create Your Own Religion, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: And what, what would you uh, sample out of that for yourself?
1: I think the whole setup was to look at like the key questions that all religions, all philosophies debate. You know, the relationship with the physical self, the body, the relationship with sexuality, gender roles, ideas about the afterlife, uh, relationship with the earth, and you know, all these kind of like big topics that all of them have to tackle in one way or another, just to figure out what are some of the answers out there. Mm-hmm what are the answer that actually makes sense to me, whether I'm the existing answers or whether none of the existing answer I find satisfying and then look for something else, um, which I think is what everybody should do anyway. Just figure out, okay, what do I feel about this? Because of course you're not going to find all the good answers in the same sure. uh, under the same heading. You know, right. if, if you find yourself that there's one label where they have all the good answers to every issue in life, I think it's there's a pretty safe conclusion that you're just deluding yourself because that just that's not how life works.
0: That makes total sense. Have you um, read the Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt?
1: No, I heard uh, I heard about it. I haven't read it.
0: Okay, and that's kind of I think in a similar vein. He um, is going into what where modern psychology is discovering. Um, you know, different philosophies and truths and and proving it in science. And they said, oh, this is really interesting. If you go to the Buddhists, they said this here. If you go to Christianity, they said this here. So all these great discoveries that we're finding right now, oh, it's all written down in these old books. So in a weird way, what you're saying is you could possibly read from each of the books. And maybe I don't get the message as clearly in buddhism but there's a particular message that resonates with me in christianity and maybe islam kind of gives me something about it something else or like bits and pieces For,
1: and even that even that gets more complicated because even within this idea which already is more open-minded than most that like oh there's a little bit here a little bit there the thing is there is no one islam one christianity one Buddhism. even within those things there's everything and it's opposite under one heading so within this particular strand of buddhism at this particular point in time they argue these things under this other strand of buddhism they argue completely opposite on the same issue so you know it's not even as simple as each religion has one answer usually there are like about 15 answers for Each one of them, you know, some have become just more mainstream and they are more popular. So it's a little easier to say, oh, that is the Buddhist approach or the Muslim approach. Right, That's a little lazy because in reality, there are many others that are also Buddhist or Muslims or whatever the hell, but they definitely don't subscribe to the mainstream version.
0: That makes sense. And I'm a programmer, so I guess I'm thinking in terms of trying to get my way around a problem. Yeah. I have to... Sometimes I just don't get it. There's a a thing called subnetting, Mm -hmm. which is a matter of translating numbers into bits so it would block or allow um, traffic. And it's a very important part. The internet, it's a backbone of the internet, how traffic moves around. I could not get this stupid thing. I think I I read six different things before somebody said it in just a particular way that was like, oh. And then it kind of clicked
1: and it started clicking,
0: right? That makes sense. So I guess that's sort of how I visualize that is the whole thing of I don't understand, but I'll just kind of keep looking at different ways and say, okay, well, maybe I feel like there's some nugget of truth here. It may not be the be-all, end-all answer, but at least Mm -hmm. it can help enlighten me to a possible degree.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that's part of the that's part of the gig that I think people, it's natural to be intellectually lazy and to just want simplicity because life is so complicated and we want one answer. We don't want to have an answer that say, yes, this is what's going on, but also this is true. However, you also have to be careful about this. It's like it's too long, too complicated, it's too messy. We want an answer that's a little simpler and to the point, you know? and. Definitely,
0: that's how stereotypes are born. When it's like, um, we're like our children. We're, we're like children still because um, you have a daughter, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure she had a couple shows or movies that she wanted to watch over and over and over again. Yep. Well, when everything's flying at you so quickly and you're just trying to absorb it, watching the same movie is, is comfortable and you actually can draw new things from that same material over and over but you're drawing comfort by locking into a particular source and i'm thinking that maybe we're still doing that even as adults of course conan the barbarian ah there you go there you go as a matter of fact i think you were doing some work with that weren't you um like you're possibly talking to the estate or
1: uh yeah not for conan specifically for it's with the frank Frazetta family um i mean Frazetta has done you know all the paintings are sort of he did he did many of the conan ones but also kind of this uh, general heroic fantasy sort of vibe right um yeah i mean it's a it's a great universe to play with
0: awesome i'm when do you foresee something coming out who
1: knows? Because I mean when you're talking about stuff like movies or TV or everything, it's mm-hmm. just such a crapshoot that nothing in that world makes sense. You know, the stuff that gets green leads, the stuff that doesn't, the stuff that nobody wanted to buy one day and ten years later suddenly becomes this huge hit. It's like <laughs> it's really an environment in which logic doesn't apply a whole lot. Um, so, you know, there's so much, there's so much just lack of the draw involved in that game that, yeah,
0: yeah. It just seems like it's timing, but yet it's weird because nobody has any interest in a particular subject. And then there'll be two things on that subject in the same year. Yep. One will be, you know, super successful and the other one will be the bomb, but it's it's so weird. It's like, and I kind of feel like some of those. Are just like producers who are in a fight with each other and they want to prove the other one a failure.
1: Yeah. No, I mean it's the whole universe. I mean, they're all, it costs a lot of money to make movies. It costs a lot of money to do TV. You cannot mm. afford to screw up. So they're all afraid to say yes to something that then's going to bomb. And so that fear is driving all their decisions. So the standard reaction is no to everything. But then eventually they have to say yes to something. However, right. The rhyme or reason for what they say yes to and what they say no to is not there a whole lot. Like, it was funny, actually, I was talking with... Actually, you know what? Probably better not to mention that. But, yeah, it, bottom line, yeah, there is not a lot of rhyme or reason on these things.
0: Well, you had a project that was up um, very recently, didn't you? That,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you know, it's and yeah, that's funny, too. Is like there's uh, probably one of the top five directors in the world in the last 20 years attached to it a super important actor today attached to it they Hmm. still can do it and it's just like (laughs) you know and then uh, you're like okay that's a little tricky and then sometimes you do see some of the stuff that gets made and you're like there is nothing in this pitch package to like screenplay sucks there are no big names there Mm -hmm. is no particular it's like why is this getting done there's just no It's so weird, man. It really is a fascinating spin on how things work in that world.
0: Is it because it's um, being run by accountants and committees?
1: Probably, probably. And I think a lot of it also depends on the mood of the day. Uh I mean, there was a thing like John Milley was the guy who directed the first Conan at this thing where, you know, the studio, he would write a screenplay. The studio would send him back these thick notes on change this, change this, change this other thing. He made it look like color coding that he changed all that stuff. He didn't (laughs) change it. Good word, and the next one was like, "Oh, now it works great. Now it's perfect. (laughs) Now you hit it." And he's like, "It's the same fucking screenplay I gave you two months ago." You know, is
0: that's fun. um, Have you read anything on Hitchcock before? Uh, No, he used to uh, make editors and everybody crazy Mm -hmm. because he couldn't stand anybody changing his stuff. Right. So he literally would never overshoot and never give coverage. He would right. only film what he wanted to be there. So they had yeah. no choice because they just didn't have any material to play with at all and they'd just be furious. Because of he course. started out in the art department and as an editor. So he was right.
1: So he knew how the game worked. Right.
0: But then again, he was Hitchcock, so he could do that.
1: Yep. Yeah. He could pull it off. Right.
0: So pivoting back around, when you arrived, um, Your academic career actually started out by teaching martial arts, right?
1: Uh, I think the first thing I taught was American Indian history. Oh, okay. And then shortly thereafter, I started teaching some courses about martial art, history and philosophy, martial art in movies at UCLA. Which even that was funny because, you know, UCLA is such a big institution that typically there's no way in hell they let you teach unless you have a PhD and they know you and this and that and the other. Mm -hmm. I had no PhD. I had a master's in uh, American Indian studies, and I walked in into a couple of departments in which I never took a single course from them ever. I have no <laughs> relevant, and I teach them the idea and they hire me because it was either me or nobody. You know, it was kind of like, yeah, good luck finding somebody else who's gonna teach a course on history and philosophy of mm-hmm. martial arts. So if you think that's something that you want because it that can attract students and you badly need the students, then you hire me. Otherwise, you just don't do it because nobody else is going to do it, you know. So it was uh, kind of funny.
0: Well, it's cool. You're plotting your own course. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, that was fun.
0: But I thought you were also teaching martial arts itself, like training.
1: Yeah, yeah I did. I did for a while. Um, that was fun.
0: And I think you um, wrote a chapter about how a individual with a hygiene problem led to uh, a marriage.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, Because, uh, yeah, the first time I was uh, – I started teaching this um, martial art course at UCLA, like practice of martial arts. And, yeah, it was funny. It's like uh, the lady I ended up marrying is like I walk into the room and uh, first thing, she came up to me going, can we open the door? Because it stinks in here. Because, yeah, it was this dude who did not believe in showers or the deodorants. Yes.
0: Now, i heard that, that that's actually a tactic that's used sometimes in um – um. MMA fights is that
1: Yeah, I heard that, that Hoyt Gracie used to do it. I don't know if his legend or is true, but I heard that yeah, he wouldn't shower for two weeks or something before the fight <laughs> nest. <laughs> That's
0: kinda of dirty pool. Yeah. So then you wound up getting married and obviously you went through some hard times there. Um
1: Yeah, I mean I was we were married for a long time, like I think I want to say 12 years, 11 years. So like after 11 years, we had, um, cause at first she was trying to figure out what to do. And then she ended up uh, going to med school. So that took time. We ended up having our daughter, uh, back in 2009 after about 11 years, we were together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then yes, about a year and a half later, my wife died of a brain tumor. So yeah, that's, was not the happiest period of my life. And, um, and of course that period was a mess in every conceivable way. Cause you know, it's like, you have the death of your spouse, you have the fact that by coincidence right around the time I realized that the career path that I thought I was preparing of getting Mm -hmm. a full time teaching gig in college was never going to happen. And that the part time gigs I had were about as good as I was ever going to get. Um, On a one income, now no longer having two incomes, that meant we could no longer afford our house. So then we we're losing our house. Was, you know, yeah, that was uh, definitely a rough time.
0: What's mind blowing is how, um, I guess, I hate to use the term, but it's almost like you faked it till you made it. In a way, like after it happened. Mm -hmm. it it sounds to me like you from what i've read and everything that momentum itself was the only thing that carried you forward you just
1: well i mean you got to you either shoot yourself or you figure out something right and so (laughs) the thing was okay let's just throw stuff out there let's see what sticks uh let's try a bunch of different things let's uh and um, and so, yeah, I mean I was right at the time i was uh I was supposed to finish writing this book, and you know, I did manage to get it done in time it was and because of the book, I ended up then getting that was really just a random univ random coincidence because Rogan never says yes to anything, you know, he get like three gazillion messages from people, even people he knows he never replies. And mm-hmm. just by random chance, he got sent a request to have me on the show from, I think, the public, somebody working for the publisher. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, yes. And i like, but at the time, you know, my life is such a mess and I, you know, everything was falling to pieces that I didn't give a crap. I was like, great. I'm on the Rogan show. Who cares? <laughs> it's, like, it's not exactly my top problem right now. You know,
0: were you into podcasts at all at the time, though? I mean, no. I think you, okay, so you didn't realize the scope of...
1: No, I is- didn't. Then again, even if I did, I probably still wouldn't have cared because, again, I had more pressing concerns. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I, after the first visit, and which worked really good because I, I think, you know, he didn't know what to expect. And we clicked and he started having fun with me. And then he started looking and he saw that his audience was responding well to me and stuff. So then he had me again. And I was like, cool. And then we started doing that fairly often, you know, he would have me on like a couple of times a year, two, three mm-hmm. times a year or something like that. And that, of course, started um, making me understand the potential of podcasting, mm-hmm. how big of a medium that could be. Um, mm-hmm. I started, ended up being a guest on a gazillion people's podcast. I started eventually doing my own with the Drunken Taoist. Right. Uh, Drang stood there. There was an obvious problem with that setup that it's somewhat of a Rogan esque type of show where you have you know, interviews and discussion and things. The uh-huh. problem with that is that people need to know you and like you as a person because sure. there's no single theme that they are attracted to. Whereas when I started History on Fire in late 2015, there was a theme right there. It's for people who are into history podcast, you know, people who are into storytelling, who are so they don't need to know you already. They are looking for a history podcast and they happen uh. to see, oh, look at that cool logo. So, of course, there's the audience is way bigger just because it's it's different kind of setup. You know, people are usually searching within a particular niche and then uh, they happen to find you if you don't belong to any niche at all then it's a lot harder of course to get an audience
0: sure sure but of course you pick the easiest possible podcast to do right
1: yeah piece of cake
0: <laughs> and that you do have a i do want to go into your workflow on that because sure. um between you and Dan Carlin um and it appears you knew Dan Carlin before this happened how how did you uh, meet up with him
1: i forget how we started by exchange emails a few times and he was always super sweet and really nice. And then, uh, when, uh, one day Rogan emailed me at noon saying, you want to be on the podcast in three hours when Carlin comes on? And I was like, <laughs> sure. Okay. So we did a podcast together. I mean, it was just supposed to be him and Dan. So I was kind of quiet that day cause it seemed more respectful, sure. but it was, we did this podcast, the three of us. And so I got to meet Dan in person and then, so we start kept communicating and, and then he's just such a sweet guy. I, I like him in he's one of the you I love him for his craft. I mean his storytelling is amazing, hardcore history is brilliant. But beside that, I just really like him as a human being, as a person. He's one mm-hmm. of those people that you tell me, Today we abolish democracy and we become a hardcore dictatorship and Dan Cardin is in charge, I would be like, Oh, cool, no problem. I wouldn't <laughs> mind. You know, I just trust him. Three hundred percent, or not. he's just one of those people who's just a good, old, an all-around good human being.
0: He seems like he'd be a Cincinnatus or a George Washington in that way,
1: right? Keep trying to relinquish the power, of mm-hmm. people. Yeah,
0: probably be resenting everyone all the same too.
1: He <laughs> yeah, does already.
0: Um, I I don't know if you know Isaiah Gouley, mm-hmm. but I, this is definitely a message I'm sure from him. If you can get Dan Carlin to get Common Sense back up, you will be a hero to the world.
1: Uh, We were on the phone for probably two hours going back and forth with Dan. And I was like, come on, man, you need to do it. Uh, (laughs) But three days later or a week later, really shortly afterwards, he released the last Common Sense episode, which was basically the essence of our conversation for those two hours. Oh, man. And then he was done. And I was just like, come on, man. uh, Yeah, I was uh, was bummed. I kept trying to, you know, it was very Lord of the Rings kind of scene, where it's like end of the second Lord of the Rings, where Frodo is like, why are we doing this? There's no (laughs) point. There's no. And so, but I clearly am a terrible Sam because my efforts at, Picking him up and going, like, come on, now more than ever. Uh, <laughs> just clearly did not deliver the results. So,
0: Well, now you can say, okay, Dan, you've had some rest. Yeah. It's, it's been a few months.
1: No, he doesn't want to do it. Uh, he doesn't want to do it. He feels the climate is too toxic. Like, mm. when it comes to politics, people are just monstrously close-minded and kind of vicious where is such an environment and for somebody like him who's not clearly aligned with somebody right. he gets to have a lot of people on both sides hating his guts and so, is. I mean, already it was funny, even before the climate became the way it is. I remember reading like iTunes reviews and the negative ones about Dan were always like, oh, he pretends that he's this more balanced guy, but he's clearly a conservative or the next guy is like he pretends he's this balanced guy, but he's really this rabid left winger. And you're just like, wow, you guys should talk to each other, you know?
0: Yeah, well, that's when you know he's nailing it.
1: Yeah.
0: No. <laughs> if everybody's angry
1: with, uh, dealing with angry people. And I mean, I kind of get the feeling it's like every time I think it happens to most people, you know, anytime we make the mistake of getting into a political discussion on Facebook or something, usually you end up regretting it. Cause it's like, yeah, nothing good came out of it other than a lot of bad vibes. So why are we doing this?
0: Yeah. It's like Godwin's law. Yeah. Everything goes to Nazis or Hitler.
1: Yeah. Kind
0: of. Right. <laughs> it's, well, on yeah. that note, your podcast, mm-hmm. History on Fire, the second one, and Drunken Taoist is very fun, too. Actually, mm-hmm. um, the story behind the name, The Drunken Taoist, wasn't that a training partner who labeled you that at one point?
1: Yeah, yeah it was kind of like, um, man, like your martial art game doesn't look that impressive, but it works. It's kind of like the old uh, drunken master in Kung Fu movies who look like crap, but suddenly he drops the young muscular challenger and <laughs> nobody understand how it happens. So it's, it's about kind of being not very orthodox, I guess.
0: Kind of a hustle. Yeah. Okay. Um, now what is your workflow though? I, you have to read um, several volumes before mm-hmm. you um, can actually put out a book. I don't know what your reading rate is. I mean I can only do about 100 pages an hour.:
1: Yeah, that's a lot already. and uh, that's already a lot. I, yeah, it's painful because you have to read a lot, a lot, a lot of material. Mm. I mean last month I spent a month working to 1 a.m. every day for so that the times when I wasn't teaching in school or something I'm researching, and after a month of work, I got, I think like 75 minutes of material for an episode jeez like, okay that's a little intense i mean there are a good 75 minutes sure still, that's still a lot of energy that goes into it
0: so now when you are researching are you just reading and just scratching notes the whole time do you use like a kindle and then um, bookmark things and note all up or how do you go about it
1: i read and then take notes in a word document Like I have a couple of Word documents where, you know, books I've read, I was looking at the other day and I think I realized I have maybe like a thousand pages, single spaced of notes on various books I've read over the last few years. So yeah, it gets a little intense. Um, yeah, you start putting together the skeleton of the story, then you start plugging in the information, then the next book you realize, okay, this is the same material. So I don't need to add anything or no, this actually adds a little bit of an element to this part of the story. And, and, you know, once eventually you have it all together, after you've read all the books, that's when you start need to put the fun stuff. You need to then make it come to life and add a little flair and make it funny and make it interesting. And, you know. Add that extra layer that turns uh, what's otherwise a dry story into a fun one.
0: Yeah. Now, so you um, do you build a framework ahead of time? Like, do you do you have an ending in mind right when you start or do you discover it as you go?
1: I think you discover a little as you go. But most of the structure is, you know, any topic that you want. You probably look at Wikipedia to see what the general structure of that story is, you know. Mm Why it's important? How does it start? Uh, where does it lead to? There's usually an endpoint. You know, the framework Wikipedia is great for the skeleton. You know, mm-hmm. to just get the skeleton of a story is great. Then, you know, everything else you need to research and that and tweak. And but have the general structure of the story. That's probably a good start.
0: I appreciate the fact that you're um, an academic who doesn't trash Wikipedia because that seems to be the rage, and I think there is a place for it.
1: Yeah, I, I think because I'm not really an academic. So it's like.
0: That's right. Sorry. You're you're like Thaddeus Russell. That's almost an insult in some ways.
1: Yeah, even Thaddeus is more, is a little friendlier to the notion of like, he speaks of being an intellectual and stuff like that. I mean, if somebody tells me I'm an intellectual, it makes me laugh, you know, I'm just like, I don't even know what that means. You know, it's, uh, there's life and there's mm-hmm. not being stupid. I believe in those things what exactly does an intellectual mean It's like, I find it a funny concept, you know, it's like, as opposed to what, as opposed to going through life, like an idiot who doesn't think about anything, just no intellectual that just been alive and not being stupid to me. That's just where it's at. Um, but I don't see the contribution of a guy who spent, uh, uh, 10 hours a day reading books. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that that leads to greater wisdom than some guy who to be a really smart, intuitive guy and is a farmer all day. You know, it's like there's. Uh, I'm not necessarily. I don't necessarily believe that the guy who sits in a crook in a library all day will have better thoughts than the next guy. Uh, I mean, I think there are better thoughts and worse thoughts, but I don't sure. think they're determined by your profession.
0: No, it makes sense. Well, you don't like labels either, so that seems yeah. to fit in. It, you don't want to equate people to each other yeah. or compare.
1: And granted, what you do for a living and how you spend your time makes a difference and you will influence who you are. Sure, but this idea that there's a spe- like to me, okay, here is what I hate about intellectuals: the whole idea that you can be somewhat separate from all the other aspects of life. This idea that you can be this specialist of thinking, but you're some guy who can't play with kids or is divorced from his physical body and doesn't go out and sweat and doesn't know out. To- then I don't really trust your thinking either. You know, if you if because to me. Good thinking is more than just about how many books you have read or the kind of good thinking is created by your whole life, by all the experiences of your life, not just the intellectual ones. I don't think uh, as thought as something that comes purely from the brain. I think as good ideas as something that comes from uh, how much you sweat, as well as how many great books you have read, as well as uh, the quality of your sex life, as well as, you know, there are like 10,000 things that go into making who you are with good ideas. I don't really buy this notion that it's about just this mental effort.
0: That makes sense. That actually makes me think of um, a quotation you um, brought up before about Teddy Roosevelt, that the black care rarely sits behind a writer whose pace is fast enough. Yeah. And you brought forth your um, quotation that um, no one is depressed during a marathon right <laughs> which um i've run some marathons and i wanted to ask you have you ever thought of training or running a marathon yourself
1: no no i mean i've run for as exercise as getting mm-hmm. my miles in kind of thing but not for a marathon
0: okay because that i totally agree with you about um, the mind and body and the marathon or, sorry running period is sure. a fantastic way to get into your thoughts. Um, Do you do any uh, reading and studying um, via audiobooks by chance?
1: Um, No, a lot of podcasts, though, that, I mean, I don't really listen to podcasts unless I'm driving, and I do drive a lot, so I am listening to podcasts. So when I'm driving, I'm usually listening to things I want to check out and start. The problem is that, you know, things that I do for research, I have to take notes. In the car, that's not the best place to do it, so it gets a little tricky sometimes.
0: That makes sense. Do you, um, but you listen to things to maybe prime you on the subject and then, or inspire yeah. you to, to dig into something deeper, things like yeah.
1: that. Or pose it. And I come to a red light and I quickly jot down two notes <laughs> on that and like just to trigger my memory to remember what it was about. And then, you know, yeah.
0: Or Siri, make a note, blah, 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 right. blah. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Now, I have a question for you. How, um, honestly, a lot of history books to me are boring as hell. Uh-huh. No offense. They're dry. And and sure. you've been kind enough to point out the fact, um, especially in the slave trade, I I meant to get the sentence down and it went by because I was outside running. Oops, that's part of the problem. But um it was one line where they started with the children and it was essentially how they cannibalized the children because they were starving so bad in that sieged
1: t- remind um, me one second, which story are we talking about? Oh uh, the beginning the the sl- on fire?
0: yeah yeah the slave yeah. Uh, slave wars and
1: yeah
0: and how they set upon the, and you pointed out how is one sentence and how completely it downplayed everything and history seems to be so full of that it mm-hmm. it made me think of growing up um they always talked about the tax collectors in them in the us and how they were tarred and feathered right and Honestly, in my mind, I was thinking Looney Tunes and, like, you know, somebody throwing honey on them and feathers and, ha ha. Yeah, well, well, what is that really? And I didn't really put it together until much later in life how horrible and gruesome that really is. You know, to have the tar just burning and peeling your skin off it, it's pretty up there with unimaginable torture.
1: Yep, not fun.
0: And, I mean, I don't see how you can survive it. And if you did, you wish you didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's... Yeah, the joys of... uh, That's why, you know, you watch Game of Thrones. It's like, that's amateur hours compared to history. History is brutal.
0: You had a great episode on that with the Game of Thrones guy, by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. We did uh, similarities between history and Game of Thrones. And uh, where Game of Thrones gets some of its inspiration from real historical events and stuff like that. And I used to say... uh, uh, okay, now I understand that because i got to say that it's going to automatically piss off people on one side of the political spectrum but the, um, I used to say that yeah, history is just like Game of Thrones minus uh, the Dragons and the White Walkers mm-hmm. but then I saw images of the Republican National Convention so now I just say minus the Dragons because the White Walkers are taken care <laughs> of right there. Oh
0: god oh god or well. So. yeah um,
1: Not- Particularly like Democrats, much but or but you know
0: <laughs> okay um how how do you go about though um do you actually sit there and consciously look for sentences like that and say, okay, and have to visualize to pull it out because uh, honestly you I can just start reading that and my eyes would just start to glaze, skim skim, skim 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 H- how do you go about pulling the life out of that?
1: Well, that's the problem. That's why when people tell you, oh, you know, I'll help you with the research, I mean, it's probably not going to work because you're going to read the same material. But the things that I, that work for me, that I'll draw from, that I'll be able to use may not be that obvious to somebody else who read the same material. They, to them, they don't necessarily speak to them the same way. So it's, unfortunately, it's a very personal process of what stands out for you and you, it's like, oh, these I can use, These I can play with, you know is uh like i I was really i was preparing this episode now about um it's a japanese samurai story Mm -hmm. and uh, i mean it kind of makes you wonder about who's the first guy who decide you know just stick a sharp sword in the left side of our body, throw it across to the right side, then pull it upward, and then we're going to pull out our guts, and maybe we'll throw them at our enemies, you know, that should be a thing that should be something that we start <laughs> doing from now on, because don't you guys think it's a great idea, it's like how the hell did that catch on you know,
0: and it's amazingly efficient, because it's, it's an action that you're physically capable of pulling off just before dying, it's like, yeah. they scientifically said, okay, well we cut off our own head. Oh, we're dead. That's too quick. If we do something else, okay. Well, we can eviscerate ourselves, and uh, okay, yeah, yeah. We can we can get that done in time, and then yeah. have our buddy cut our head off. If we're you know a little ugly about it,
1: yeah. It turns out he's not that efficient in the sense that if the goal is killing ourselves, that's not a fast way to go.
0: No, I meant for the pain it, to yeah, get the maximum damage possible without dying. Very, yeah. very efficient in that.
1: Hey. <laughs> what the hell, why are, so yeah, there are things that are where exactly you find the dark humor, varies quite a bit, so I mean, the stories that would work for me, um, yeah, it's very hard to tell somebody, that's why it's kind of, like even Dan had the same thing, you was saying, yeah, people are trying to get me to be faster, so they volunteer to research for me, Mm -hmm. doesn't work, unfortunately, I have to read it, otherwise it doesn't do the same thing.
0: Hmm. How do you go about um, picking what's going to be a subject? Do you just kind of glance at different things and something just strikes out at you? Like-
1: I mean, I think just the beginning, like when I started uh, thinking of, oh, I want to do this podcast, I just started writing down enough subjects that I have podcasts for like five years or something. Um, mm-hmm. Just the ones that I thought, OK, powerful stories, stories that interest me, stories that intrigue me. There were There were a lot. You know, there were definitely a lot of right there. So, my notes right now or other possible subjects, yeah, there's a whole long list.
0: So, how do you go about culling things? Because it sounds like you may be interested in ten things, and then when you're getting ready to record, you're like, you know what? I don't really care about this one right now. Um, yeah, that third one's more like interesting that. at this time because I'm moody that way. Even if it's a book I'm picking up, I'll I'll be like. I've got a bit of a problem. I tend to buy all the books and then, you know, I'm hot to read it now, but I'm not done with my current book. And then when I'm done with the current book, I'm like, well, I don't want to read that now. (laughs) So is there a fickleness involved? Yeah. I mean, it's,
1: you can't really afford to be too fickle because once you start, You are on a time crunch. You need to make it happen fast and nothing is fast because it's going to take a long time. So you can't really afford to have done half the research and then you change your mind and you decide to change topic. That's just not going to happen. You know, you're too deep already. By then you are committed to the process. So I think I need to look at what the topics are. I need to see what I think I'm in the mode for, what I have enough sources on, what okay. how long will it take me to get this stuff done? Do I have enough time for it? That kind of thing. And okay. and then start cranking down.
0: So some of it is an uh, availability bias. Like um yeah. if if you think you want to do a subject and there's only one book on it and it there's not a whole lot of meat there as you read into it, you skip it yeah. or yeah. Something else, you go, okay, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am I'm, bit off more than I could chew if I get that one. Yep. You know, it would take me six episodes to you, you do it justice. Or...
1: Yeah, like right now, I just picked up from the library a bunch of books about uh, Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. There's so much written about her, and it's kind of brutal because, you know, I know that that's going to be a long one. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many episodes I can get out of it, so there's a very real problem of do I have the time to get it done. Uh, Does that buy me enough to carry me through the time that I need to cover in the next few months? Um, So, yeah, I don't know. And, and then also, you know, there's realistically no way in the world that I'm going to read every book that has been written on John O'Farr because there are so many. So he's like, okay, what's, what's a good, when can I call it quits? You know, how many are necessary? How many are too much?
0: Is there a problem, too, with the uh, quality of sources, because yeah, thought, especially thought... back then? I mean, it's not like we have a lot of great firsthand accounts. Isn't a lot of rumor and legend and things like that to have to pick through?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of my most requested topic from listeners is um, people who want the story of uh, Miyamoto Musashi, the samurai. Mm-hmm. And from what I've seen so far, it's a terrible story. I mean, it's like all the good stuff is legend and all the real history is crap, really. So it's just one of those topics that I'm kind of getting the feeling that it would be a letdown. I don't know. I'll, I'll try to look deeper into it and see if there's a way to make it fun. Mm-hmm. But from everything I'm reading, you know, the real stuff about Mosashi, he's just a violent psychopath with very few redeeming qualities. So it's kind of like, yeah, I don't see it, you know.
0: That um, makes me think of Dan Carlin and Alexander the Great and whether he was pretty much as much of a monster as Hitler, just a matter of how close we are to him and which side we we're on.
1: Right. 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 Yeah. Some of the stories get, get a little weird because the mythology is so much better than the real history. And that's when sometimes it's too Like the gap is too much. I don't mind if there is a bit of a gap. That's fine. That's inevitable. But if it's really night and day, that's problematic.
0: Hmm. Now, is there um, anything coming up that you're super excited about?
1: Uh, the next one, I'm re- I mean, I'm finishing this series about this uh, Italian gang in the 1970s and 1980s who took over Rome. So th- that those guys are quite wild and it's interesting. But uh, the next one after that is going to be the Forty Seven Ronin is sort of this legendary raid that took place at the beginning of the 1700s in Japan. Uh, that I found the difference between the legend and the history. There is difference, but it's not as dramatic as I think it still makes for a great story. So that <clears throat> that should be a fun one.
0: Well, when you mentioned the um legend and the truth is sometimes the how a legend tur- or how the truth turns into a legend, sometimes the fun of it yeah like oh Absolutely. this is how they exaggerate or this is how the one side saw it isn't that funny and how this side saw it completely different yep yeah yeah yep. uh, one question about your process um, mm-hmm. when you are actually performing how do you go about it do you have a um teleprompting tool or
1: no but i uh, I mean There's no video, so I can afford to be kind of staring at my notes while I, while I chat. And, um, yeah, and I have a lot of pretty extensive notes on it. Not, it's not a full script, but it's not that far from it. So that I can, you know, make it a little more spontaneous so it doesn't sound like, I'm reading something, mm-hmm. but it's also detailed enough that I know exactly where I'm going, I know exactly what's coming up next, I know where to put the accent, where to make it funny, where to, you know, do all that stuff.
0: So it's kind of like an extended outline?
1: Yeah, very extended.
0: Okay, and um, now do you do you make a lot of errors? You see, I can't read anything without screwing it up or do any kind of a dialogue without...
1: No, that stuff doesn't, you know, most of the time, if I record a two-hour podcast, it's probably going to take us uh, uh, two hours and 40 minutes, three hours at most. You know, there are not going to be too many breaks or too many. It happens, but not too bad.
0: So you do, you do it in one sitting then, usually? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you do it a piece at a time or whatever.
1: Oh, no, it happens pretty fast. I mean, it's not real time, but it's... It's maybe an hour more than real time at most.
0: And where do you do your recording typically? At, at home, at office? Yeah, or? at home. Okay, do you have a, a particular sound setup, a room?
1: No, I mean, you just try to do it, usually try to do it at night when there's less sounds coming in from outside. Um, close the doors, um, put the. Uh, it's you know very low tech setup so i have a microphone with a pop filter that the pop filter is funny we made it with a cloth hanger (laughs) bending it around the microphone and then stretching some cut up pantyhose on it and that serves as a pop filter but it It works it's efficient yeah
0: that's the miracle of audio yeah (laughs) after all i have a face for radio but
1: that's the way it works (laughs)
0: Well, I. Where can people find you?
1: I think usually, I mean, especially these days, it's like Google answer all your good questions, right? (laughs) As you can figure out how to spell my name, usually you are set to find everything you want. There's a website, History on Fire podcast for History on Fire. There's the Drunken Taoist for. Drunk and Taoist episodes. There's, uh, I have a public page on Facebook. I have a Twitter account, you know, all the good stuff.
0: Okay. And it's all Daniele, Bellelli, uh-huh. and the other names. Now I really, um, do want to give you a shout out and, and recommend everyone get your audiobook on your site as a, a really tremendous book. Um, I deeply appreciate your vulnerability and honesty in that. And I think you did a great job of being human and open, especially about your relationship, how you described how it wasn't all perfect. And in that sense, you made it even more important. So I wanted to tell you that before we left that I did. It gets
1: gets a little intense. huh?
0: It does. It does. But, um, I, I can totally see, um, how fear and overcoming it and everything else seems to be a, a line through a lot of your work through your book, mm-hmm. um, Teddy Roosevelt, um, and different factors. And I wanted to thank you very much. And thank you very much for appearing here and taking the time well, to talk with us.
1: Time. Thanks for having me
0: and look forward to seeing what you have next. Well, man, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again.